Blog Talk Radio. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free book by John called None Other, Discovering the God of the Bible. This detailed look at God's character can strengthen your trust in the Lord and deepen your love for Him. Request your free book by writing to noneother at gty.org. That's noneother at gty.org. The offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2018. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur. 
If you will, open your Bible to Galatians chapter 5 and 6. Now remember, Galatia is a region, and Paul is writing to a number of churches in cities in the region of Galatia. He has been defending his apostleship, he has been defending the gospel, and he has been defining what it is to live a Christian life, freedom in Christ rather than legalism. We want to pick up Paul's account in chapter 5, verse 16, backtracking it just a little bit so we can set a context. In the last two chapters, he deals with issues of the Christian life. The first two chapters defends his apostleship. The second two chapters, he defends the gospel. Now he writes about spiritual life, how to walk in the Holy Spirit, how to live a life of freedom in Christ that is still obedient. And we'll pick it up in chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God." But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus, they have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another." for each one will bear his own load. The one who is taught the Word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him." Now we have gone all the way down to verse 26 in our study, but we are reminded here that the church has to face an inevitable reality. As much as we want unity and as much as we want purity and virtue and holiness, for the sake of our joy, usefulness, fruitfulness, and witness, the church will always be divided at any time between those who are walking in the Spirit and those who are walking in the flesh. Each is not a fixed and permanent condition because all of us who are true believers are, as a norm, walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit because we have been made new creations. and. We are now empowered by the Spirit to worship and love and obey the Lord. So that is the, the norm for believers. But it is also true that we still have our remaining 
flesh. We are still bound to a body of death until our glorification comes. So though walking in the Spirit is our norm, walking in the flesh also is a reality. Again, not a fixed reality for a true believer, but a a point in time or a season in life where we operate in fleshly pride and uh, disobedience and self-will, and sin becomes more typical of our lives. On the other hand, when a Christian walks in the Spirit, that Christian has Spirit-led worship, Spirit-induced love, and Spirit-empowered obedience. At any given time, again, in the life of the church, we have both of these side by side. We are struggling in ourselves as individuals with this conflict. Turn to Romans chapter 7, if you will. I want to read this familiar portion of Scripture, Romans 7, because it sets this down so clearly. Paul is defining his own spiritual experience as a believer. And in that spiritual experience, he sees a conflict. Starting in verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want... I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. So he really sees himself as a new creation longing to do what honors God, but held back by something that is still in him, namely his unredeemed and fallen humanness. He says in verse 21, I find the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law or different principle in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? It's as if he has a corpse attached to himself. He knows the answer, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. It will happen someday, but in the meantime, so then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. So that is even true in the life of every believer. There is a battle going on between the power of the Spirit energizing the new creation and the power of the flesh in remaining humanness. Since that is every Christian's struggle, it is also the struggle of every church. There are some who at any point in time are walking in the Spirit and others who are walking in the flesh. Now, how are we to understand sanctification? Just as a footnote in regard to this, I would simply say it this way. Sanctification or progressive holiness, growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord, sanctification is the decreasing frequency 
of sin. It is the decreasing frequency of those episodes where we walk in the flesh. It is not only the decreasing frequency of those episodes, it is the decreasing intensity of those episodes. What happens is, as you are sanctified and more and more conformed to the person of Jesus Christ, you have fewer times when you walk in the flesh and they are not as intense or powerful as they once were. As you are sanctified, you have a greater love for Christ, a greater love for worship, a greater joy in obedience, and a stronger power over your flesh. That's sanctification. Still, even those who have been at it a long time are not perfect, and so we all, as James 3, 2 says, stumble in many ways. In fact, if you deny that, that is a serious act because you are, in effect, calling God a liar. Listen to 1 John 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. It is unbiblical and it is in some measure blasphemous to deny that you are sinful. So we all understand that we have connected to us a body of death, our unredeemed natural humanness. We are then ourselves in a battle. And therefore, the battle is in the church as well as we walk in the Spirit and walk in the flesh and our lives are pressed against each other in the life of the church. Walking in the flesh does damage to the believer on an individual level. Walking in the flesh creates a loss of joy, a loss of peace, a loss of all of the fruit of the Spirit, a loss of confidence, a loss of assurance, a loss of hope, a loss of usefulness, a loss of fruitfulness, and even a loss of effective witness. But it does not only do damage to the individual, it obviously does damage to the church. It wounds the church. And so our Lord, the head of the church, is concerned that we deal with those walking in the flesh in the church for the sake of His glory and the purity and testimony of the church. Now, the New Testament has a lot to say about this. I just want to give you an overview. So turn for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you will. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul obviously writing to a church that was like any other church, struggling uh, with sin. There were those walking in the Spirit. There were those walking in the flesh for sure. And those walking in the Spirit apparently were not doing anything about those walking in the flesh. And so chapter 5 says it's reported actually that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as doesn't exist even among the nations that someone has his father's wife, a kind of incest. And you, rather than dealing with it, have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present in the name of our Lord Jesus when you are assembled and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh 
so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul tells them, you've got to deal with this immoral person, and you've got to deal with him openly, and you've got to deliver him, if necessary, over to Satan. There may be some fleshly destruction, but his soul will be saved, which indicates that this is a believer walking in the flesh. They hadn't done that. The boasting that they were exercising over maybe the purity and greatness of their church was not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? You've got, you've got sin there. You've got yeast, and it's going to affect the whole church. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Christ offered a sacrifice to put away sins, and you need then to confront sin and deal with it. Verse 8, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I didn't at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those that are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Again, this is a call to the church to deal with sin in the church because it creates impurity and it produces all kinds of of corruption. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul talks about an occasion where sin was confronted, and uh, apparently there was a response, a positive response to the confrontation of sin in the life of an individual. So in 2 Corinthians 2, 6, he says, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. Apparently went all the way to the church. The church dealt with it, the majority. Now he says, you should, verse 7, forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I, wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Reaffirm your love for him. You want to do this. You want to forgive. Verse 11 says, so that no advantage will be taken of us by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his schemes. Satan wants to use division in the church. This is a person who's repented. He's come back for restoration. You need to forgive this person. You need to love this person. You need to comfort this person. You need to fully embrace this person so that Satan doesn't use this situation to perpetuate division in the church. Also in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, just to show you some of how the New Testament addresses this, chapter 11, 2 Corinthians Verses 1 to 3, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. Paul's being a little bit facetious there. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds are being led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Paul is concerned that the people there are being led away from purity and devotion to Christ. He addresses it even further in chapter 12 to the same people. Verse 19, all this time you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ 
and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. Those are the very things listed in Galatians as the works of the flesh. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. Then he warns them, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses, of course, established in Deuteronomy 19. I have previously said when present the second time and now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Again, Paul says, I'm going to come. I'm going to deal with sin in the church. So now going back to our thoughts about Galatians, what is the church to do in dealing with this kind of sin? What are we to do? Where there is sin in the church, what is our objective? Chapter 6, verse 1 says, Restore such a one. Now that's the heart of this passage. Restore such a one. The objective of, of spiritual discipline, church discipline, is not to put people out. That's a last resort for people who won't repent. The point of all of this confrontation of sin is restoration, restoration. Now, what is the pattern that we are to use in approaching sin, dealing with it, and coming to a point of restoration? Turn to Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, we have the first instruction ever given to the church by our Lord in the New Testament. The church is first mentioned in 16, and here's the first instruction to the church. Chapter 18, verse 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Someone walking in the flesh, you go to the person... If he listens, you've won your brother. If he doesn't listen, you take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Again, back to Deuteronomy. If he refuses to listen to the two or three witnesses who are there, tell, tell it to the church. You tell the whole church to go after the person. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, you put them out of the church. Put them out of the church. If they will not repent, you've gone to the person, you've taken two or three witnesses, the whole church is gone, they still don't repent. Treat them like an outsider because, as we read in 1 Corinthians 5, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You can't just leave them there in a constant, perpetual state of sin. And that they repent, of course, go down to verse 21, Peter came and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Peter knows the pattern. Well, if you do this, people are going to sin again and they're going to sin again. And how often do you keep doing this? Do you do it seven times? The rabbi said three times. Peter thought he'd double it and add one because he was so noble. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven times. You just keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. At the end of everything... Forgiveness is what sustains and restores all relationships. In the end, forgiveness is what restores all 
relationship. So the church then, the first instruction to the church is if somebody's sinning, somebody's walking in the flesh, go to the person. If they listen, you've gained your brother. You've restored your brother. If they don't, you take two or three. If they don't listen, you tell the church. If the church goes and they don't listen, you put them out. You disfellowship them. As we saw again in 1 Corinthians, turn them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That fleshly part of them is going to be devastated, but their soul will be saved in the end. So we are always working toward the restoration in all acts of discipline. So where there is sin and where there is, let's assume, repentance, how do we deal with the restoration process? Because what it says in chapter 6, verse 1 is, restore such a one. So we're talking about how to restore a believer who has wandered off the path and started walking in the flesh. What does the church do? Well, we, we read that starting in 526 down through 6. But let me kind of set the scene for you. Look at verse 26. Let us not become boastful. That's how the verse begins. And the verse ends, envying one another. And in the middle, challenging one another. The word challenging literally means to create a conflict, to, to go into combat. Very strong word. So there's, there, there's a potential here for severe conflict between the boastful and the envious. Let us not become boastful. The boastful would tend to be the spiritual ones. Canadoxos. It means thinking you have a rightful claim to honor. That's what the word means. Or um, one who talks big, um, who seeks, I guess you could say, undeserved tribute, conceit, empty vanity. On the one hand, you could have the spiritual ones who are walking in the flesh feeling superior and boasting about their spirituality and, and therefore tainting that spirituality with that very sin. And on the other hand, you would have those who are the weaker ones who tend to walk in the flesh as the ones who are envying the more spiritual ones. And so you have one group of people feeling superior and one group of people feeling inferior and conflict results in the life of the church. Sort of the haves and the have-nots, the, the ones that are spiritual and the ones that are not spiritual. This can create terrible conflict, terrible combat. This can be a great challenge in the church. The last thing the Apostle Paul wanted to see in his church was this kind of conflict. Back in chapter 5, if you go back to verse 13, he had already said, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. And then he says, walk in the Spirit and not the flesh. If you, if you don't do that, if you don't walk in the Spirit, if you don't come together, you're going to bite and devour one another. You're going to have the spiritual and the fleshly. You're going to have conflict and war in the church. This conflict is a reality. The Bible calls us to unity in the church, constantly telling us we need to be united 
together in the church. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. So you're always working on unifying believers around the love that the Spirit of God has poured into our hearts. Now, this passage, then, verse 26, kind of introduces the potential conflict. Then in chapter 6, verse 1, we see the remedy for this, okay? What, what do we do about this kind of faction or fracturing of the church? Brethren, so we know we're talking about this is believer's work. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Now, we're going to be introduced to three steps. This is what you do when you find someone walking in the flesh. Number one, pick them up. Pick them up. Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, here is a Christian uh, caught in a trespass, tripped up, a carnal deed or a carnal pattern. This is, um, this is something that happens to the believer. It's not so much the idea of a premeditated, willful, concocted sin as it is being caught. It's the passive verb, lambano. It's, uh, it's the idea that you got caught, you got trapped, that you stumbled into this particular trespass. And when you find a believer who otherwise is walking in the Spirit but stumbles into a trespass, paraptama, meaning a stepping aside, a stepping out of the path, that's essentially what it means. It means to walk off in another direction. So they've stopped walking in the Spirit and they're walking in the flesh. If you come across somebody like that who has gotten off the path of walking in the Spirit, you have a responsibility. As believers, you have a responsibility to restore such a one. This is where the responsibility lies. It lies with those that are spiritual, those that are spiritual, you who are spiritual. Now, who are those who are spiritual? Turn to 1 Corinthians 2.14 and I'll show you how Paul defines this for us. 1 Corinthians 2.14, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. A natural man, a non-believer, is not able to solve spiritual problems, not able to answer spiritual questions or to deal with spiritual issues. But, verse 15 says, He who is spiritual appraises all things yet he himself is appraised by no one. What that means is you who are spiritual have the capability to rightly assess everything. You see truth and error. You see righteousness and sinfulness. You see obedience and disobedience. You see love and the lack of it. You have the discernment that spirituality produces. Why? Verse 16, for who has known the mind of the Lord that we will instruct Him, but we have the mind 
of Christ. Here's the issue. The spiritual person knows the mind of Christ. How do we know the mind of Christ? Because we know the Scripture where His mind is revealed, okay? So the spiritual person is the one who knows the Word of God and can make an accurate assessment of what is happening. He has insight. He has discernment. Or he has, or she has insight. She has discernment. That is the spiritual one. Paul says to the Corinthians in chapter 3 right there, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you're not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able, for you're still fleshly. How do we know? There's jealousy and strife. Are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? This is the difference. People who walk in the flesh are not spiritual. Paul says, I can't talk to you as spiritual. Spiritual people are those who, by having the mind of Christ, understanding the revelation of God, can apply that to every situation and make an accurate appraisal. So you in the congregation who are spiritual, you have the responsibility to go to this person who has fallen, who has stumbled, and pick them up. Pick them up. Restore such a one. Restore such a one. It's a command, katartidzo. It means to repair or to restore to its original condition. This verb is used of reconciling factions. It's used of, uh, of resetting bones. It's used of putting a dislocated limb into place. And it's used of mending nets. Fix them. Pick them up. Pick them up from the fall, from the stumbling. This is a call to be engaged in the initial restoration. Help that person appraise his sin or her sin. Help that person see the way God sees. Show them the mind of Christ over their life. The idea is not punishment. The idea is restoration. You go and you pick that person up and you bring discernment based on your understanding and obedience to the Word of God. So the unfallen, you might say, are to lift up those who have stumbled. The sooner we get into spiritual restoration of our brothers and sisters, the sooner we obey the Lord of the church and restore blessing to the church and power to the church and a clear testimony. What should be your attitude when you do this? It says in verse 1, in a spirit of gentleness. Same word up in verse 23, one of the fruits of the Spirit. It could be translated meekness. It's humility. It's the kind of humble, gentle, sweet-spirited, loving care over someone who has stumbled and you're there to pick that person up. 2 Corinthians 10.1 says it's the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So you basically follow the pattern of the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now, I know in Matthew 7, 1, it says, Judge not lest you be judged. And I know in James 4, it tells us not to judge. But those are referring to rendering a final verdict. In fact, in James 4, it means to speak against someone in a slanderous way, in a derogatory way, in a way of accusation, defamation. And that's what our Lord is referring to also in Matthew chapter 7, judging in that way. We don't judge in that way. We're not the final judge of anybody's life. So though we don't judge them, we do come into their lives 
reckon with reality the condition of their sinfulness and pick them up. Now, sometimes they don't want that. Sometimes they don't respond. And if people don't respond, the Scripture's pretty clear about how we deal with that. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you stay away from every brother who leads an unruly life. So if this is more than just a, a, a brief deviation from the from the pathway, but this is an unruly life, you don't want to stay around that individual. You want to stay away because a little leaven is very corrupting. And then in 1 Timothy 5, verse 20, we read regarding elders, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. There may be those who continue to sin, even those in leadership, they are to be openly and publicly rebuked. And, of course, there's no restoration at that point because they haven't repented and sought it. Another one of those illustrations, Titus 3.10, a factious man, a divisive person, is to be rejected after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted, sinning, and being self-condemned. So when we talk about restoration, we're talking about those people who are responsive. We go to them and pick them up. Where they want to persist in their sin, we put them out of the church. But for those who have stumbled into this sin that we pick up, that's our responsibility. We do it with gentleness. We do it with meekness. And the end of verse 1 says, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. In other words, that's simply to recognize the fact that you're no better than they are. You're no different than they are. So you're, you're going in and you're helping them. You're, you're getting the, the splinter out of their eye, but you've, you've already made sure you, you've gotten the one out of your own eye. So you don't go in an arrogant, self-righteous way. You go in a humble way, understanding your own propensity to the same kind of sin and the same kind of stumbling. That is the essence of humility. That's why 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. So you also go into that consultation, picking up the sinning believer, realizing that uh, you may find yourself in an environment where what tempted him will tempt you, and you have to be very careful. So it starts with the command to pick them up. Secondly, hold them up. Hold them up. Now that you've picked up, this believer, you've got the responsibility, verse 2 says, to bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. You now get under their burden. You carry it. Bastadzo in the Greek means to carry something in, in a kind of an enduring way. You shoulder the load as they try to come out from under the sin that has beset them. You get under the burden with them. Bear one another's burdens, baras. It's a word that means a heavy weight. Whatever oppresses that believer, whatever has defeated that believer, whatever has taken that believer's joy, whatever has stripped that believer of power and uh, purpose, you get under the affliction. You get under the burden. Don't let them carry their burden alone. 
You know, the Bible is pretty clear. Psalm 55:22 says, "Cast all your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you." And 1 Peter tells us in chapter 5 verse 7, "Casting all your care on him, the Lord Jesus Christ, because he cares for you." Uh, that that's fine, but but God uses human agents to help us to be able to do that. So you step in as kind of an intermediary between Christ and that struggling believer and you pick up the burden and you carry it. And when you do that, you fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Not the law of Moses. What is the law of Christ? The law of Christ is the law of love. That is the law of Christ. Back in verse 14 of chapter 5, love your neighbor as yourself. That is the law of Christ. That is the law of love. James makes this crystal clear for us. James chapter 1, verse 25. One who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it. That's the perfect law and the law of liberty. What is the perfect law and what is the law of liberty? Well, James 2.8 says it's the royal law. What is the perfect law, the law of liberty, and the royal law? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's the law of love. So that's how you fulfill the law of love, by holding up a believer who has stumbled. You come alongside with them. You walk with them. You care for them. You pray with them. You wash their feet, as we saw in John 13. This is what you do. This is how you care for them. Verse 3 adds a very important caveat. If anyone thinks he's something... When he's nothing, he deceives himself. If you think you're too good to do this, you don't know the truth about yourself. If you think this is beneath you, if you think you're above this, if you think this is below the level of your dignity, you are self-deceived, conceit is vain, glory. You are nothing when you think you're something. You have to realize you're no better you're no better than that individual. You might well have succumbed to that very same temptation. If you think you're something when you're nothing, you're self-deceived. And then how do you get self-deceived? By comparing yourselves with others. Comparing yourselves with others. You can always find somebody you're better than. Always. But that's what most people do. Compare themselves with others. That's, that's not acceptable for believers. Verse 4 makes it clear. Rather than compare yourselves with others, each one must examine his own work in an absolute way, not a relative way, not compared to somebody else, but in an absolute way. You examine your own work. Then you'll have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. You look at your own life. Don't say, well, I'm better than that guy. You can always find somebody who's in worse shape than you are. Look at your own life in an absolute look, not a relative look, and say, am I what I should be? Am I what Christ wants me to be? You need to do that because, verse 5 says, each one will bear his own load. Well, what does that mean? I thought we were supposed to bear somebody else's load. That's true. We are to bear each other's baras, heavy weight, but we each bear our own fortion, is the Greek word, and it's baggage. It's baggage. And what he's saying is, 
in life, you are to be bearing one another's burdens and not comparing yourself with someone else and thinking you're too good to do that, but you are to examine your own life, not in a relative sense, but in an absolute sense, comparing it to the Word of God and Christ Himself, because one day when you show up at the Bema judgment, you're going to be judged based on your own baggage. If you're too indifferent to carry somebody else's load, you're going to find a forfeiture of reward when the Lord checks your baggage. You carry your own baggage to the judgment seat. 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, verse 10, so that each may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, good or bad. Good or useless. Whether it's gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. You're going to show up at the, at the beam of judgment, the judgment of believers in the presence of the Lord, and you're going to be judged on your own baggage, what you've sent ahead and what you've brought with you. And your reward will be greater if you've humbled yourself and you've picked up sinning brothers and sisters and you've held them up with love and prayer, and encouragement, and support, and friendship. Then lastly, there's a final duty in this. Pick them up, hold them up, and build them up. Build them up is really important because you want to get them to the point where they're not so easily led astray. Verse 6 has been controversial as to its meaning. There there may be a number of possibilities here, but it seems that just in the flow here, it makes perfect sense to say what the verse says. The one who is taught the Word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. What this implies is you now have a teaching relationship with this believer who will respond to your instruction by sharing good things back with you so that this kind of restoration is not a short-term enterprise. You, um, you have picked this believer up. You have held this believer up by helping to share the, the heavy load, the burden. Now you have become the instructor, building them up, the one who taught the Word. The one who taught the Word is to share. That's koinoneo, the word fellowship to fellowship with the teacher in all good things. Now you've got a friendship. You're, you're giving instruction. You're the catecheo. You're the catechumen. And the catechist is going to share back with you his response. And what will happen is, as you build the believer up in the Word, he will share back with you all good things. What does that mean? Agathois just means goodies, spiritual goodies, all spiritual blessings. Paul is saying now as you build that believer up and you begin to see the work of the Word and the Spirit in that believer's life, you'll be, by virtue of that proximity and intimacy and friendship, you'll be there receiving all the spiritual benefits that flow out of your investment in that person's life. 
So when you see a brother who is, or a sister who is walking off the path, you go to them, you run to them, you reach out a hand, you lift that believer up, draw that believer back to the path of the Holy Spirit with sweet words and embracing love and affection, and then you hold that believer up by coming alongside to be strength to them in your prayers and in your personal care. And then you build that believer up by teaching that believer so that that believer will not fall again into the same trap. You walk together in koinonia, in fellowship. This is our task, and this is how the church sustains and maintains its unity. And its unity is a unity of love. And as our Lord said, if you have love for one another, all men will know that you are my disciples. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, I know we live in a day when people are obsessed with privacy. People don't want the truth known about their lives. But it's so very important that in the life of the church we show our affection for You, our love for You and for each other by restoring one another. That we have a view not of condemnation but of restoration not a rendering a final judgment on someone because of certain behaviors or thinking they're less than we are. Anything might be offered to them would be beneath our dignity, but rather that we, when seeing one walking off the path, we run to that individual. We run because we love and we're fulfilling the perfect law, the law of freedom, the royal law, the law of Christ, which is to love one another. May it be, Lord, that we continue to manifest that love to each other, not only in those wonderful, refreshing times when we're all walking in the Spirit, but may we manifest that love in those times when those we care about are walking in the flesh. And would You use us, Lord, to, to draw them back to restore them, that they may walk in the Spirit and experience love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control, that they may enjoy the full richness and blessing of a Spirit-filled life. We thank You, O God, that You have granted us Your Holy Spirit. We, we were convicted by Him. The Spirit convicted us of sin and righteousness and judgment. We were regenerated by Him. We are begotten again by the Word of truth through the Spirit. We are being sanctified by the Spirit. We love because the Spirit has shed abroad love in our hearts. We are Spirit-led and Spirit-empowered and Spirit-filled. And Lord, because of that, we can fulfill the law of Christ, the royal law, the law of love. May we not be known merely because our theology is sound and accurate, but may we be known because our love is evident, manifest.
may it be overflowing in our fellowship to the rescuing and restoring of one another for your glory and the honor of your name, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with grace to you. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. And for details about the Masters University where John serves as president, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Writing this to you, I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the Immutable, beautiful You never change, never change Forever you reign, you remain the same You will never change, you will never change Immutable, beautiful You never change, never change I was thinking just the other day How you reign supreme by far Not just because of what you do But simply because of who you are There's none like you in existence You are God and you need no assistance Even though we show you resistance You sent Jesus to close the distance That existed between God and man According to your sovereign plan We changed many times in one lifespan I've changed even since this song began Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us All that you do will certainly last You are the rock that we can trust Shows us back in eternity past As long ago as that was as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the same. Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change. Immutable, beautiful, you never change.
confused about my ups and downs All of my inconsistencies All of my idiosyncrasies Still you pursue relentlessly At times I wonder how this can be Surely it's because of the cross Where Jesus paid the full penalty And bore the burden of sin's great cost I'm saved by grace and faith in God I look to Christ and I trust he died So even though I'm being sanctified I can't be any more justified His work is finished that cannot change And with this knowledge I am free Forever this grace it will remain Because of what happened on Calvary As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change. You remain the same. Immutable, beautiful. You never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change. Immutable, beautiful. You never change, never change. That was immutable by Shadan. And now, have answers and How old is the earth? This is Ken Ham, an Aussie transplant with a passion for sharing the truths of God's word. Nowhere does the Bible give us an exact age of the earth. And that's a good thing. It'll be out of date each year. But that doesn't mean we can't determine that the Bible, a book of history, gives us the information we need. Genesis 1 tells us God created in six days. Exodus 20 re-emphasizes that these were regular 24-hour days. And Genesis provides detailed chronologies, allowing us to easily see there were 2,000 years of history between Adam and Abraham. And we know Abraham lived 2,000 years before Christ, and we lived 2,000 years afterward. So, just 6,000 years of history. That's the age of the earth. Listen to this program again or view a transcript when you visit our faith-affirming website at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be encouraged at AnswersRadio.com. Changing grace in every high and 
stormy gale My anchor holds within the veil My Christ the solid rock I stand All underground is sinking sand All other ground is sinking sand All other ground is sinking sand All other ground is sinking sand One Christ the solid rock People don't view atheism as a religion. In fact, many atheists will get upset if you call it a religion. They like to say it's a non-belief because they don't believe in God. But think about it. They believe that life arose by natural processes and that the universe originated by natural processes. They say there's no supernatural and we set the rules. These are beliefs. One of the definitions of religion is a system of beliefs held to with ardor and faith. Now that certainly describes most atheists and atheism. It's a religion, and it's the religion being taught in schools throughout the nation. Religion hasn't been kicked out of schools. Christianity has. Get answers when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive Ken Ham's free daily insights delivered to your inbox when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of His Spirit, washed in His blood.
For Dinosaurs on the Ark, this is Ken Hamm, CEO of the ministry that built a full-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati. Now, many people wonder if dinosaurs were on the ark. Well, let's look and see what the Bible says. Genesis tells us two of every kind of land animal, seven pairs of some, came aboard the ark. It doesn't say two of every kind except dinosaurs. No, it was two of every kind. So why do some people wonder about dinosaurs? Because we've been so influenced by an evolutionary worldview, we often have a hard time thinking biblically. We've been brainwashed to believe that dinosaurs lived millions of years ago, long before man. But that's not the history we find in God's Word. God created everything just a few thousand years ago, and that includes what we call dinosaurs. Listen to this program again or view a transcript. And listen to other programs at AnswersRadio.com. And sign up to receive email insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com.
So which God? This is Ken Ham, author, speaker, and blogger on why we can trust the Bible today. For years, I've been telling people that when you say God to the secularized culture, you can't just assume they share your understanding of God. You actually have to define what you mean by God. Well, new research shows that 80% of Americans say they believe in God, but 23% accept some other higher power or spiritual force rather than the God of the Bible. Nearly a quarter of those who believe in God don't mean the God of the Bible. They've invented their own God. You know, this is a reminder that we need to go back to the beginning and define our terms when we're sharing the gospel with others. What do we mean by God? Get answers about how to share the gospel in this secularized culture when you visit AnswersRadio.com and plan your visit to the Ark Encounter at AnswersRadio.com. We 
to our evolutionized culture and even to the church. The flood of Noah's day was a massive catastrophe. It completely changed the world of that time. And we find evidence of the flood all around the globe. In Yellowstone National Park, there's a geological feature called the Heart Mountain Slide. Now, a layer of sediments, nearly one third of a mile thick, broke away. It slid 30 miles down a nearly flat slope, attaining a top speed of nearly 100 miles per hour. Scientists who start with the idea that the present is the key to the past have a hard time explaining this catastrophe. But the flood explains it. The flood and its aftermath created unique conditions for catastrophes like this huge slide. Discover answers about the flood and geology when you go to AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com. Let me start this off with a hallelujah to Jesus, the sovereign ruler. This is not a rumor. Got the truth, so we about to screw you. Check out a style maneuver. Shout it to you like the loudest group. Christ brought us up from out the sewer. We don't have to doubt the future. Crafting our verses as we bask in his worship. You asking the purpose? Partly to fetch hats from the furnace. Through Jesus' extravagant service, immaculate purchase. He was smashing the serpent, and we only scratching the surface. He proceeded was conceived in the womb of a virgin. The sun emerges in the manger while the angels serenade him. It's the birth of the Savior, the greater and Came a man, came as a lamb, and would be executed to execute the plan to substitute the sand. In the place of the wicked on the cross, he was lifted, but we considered him stricken and afflicted, just like the prophets predicted. He came at the proper moment to stop his opponent and lay down his life to offer atonement. He's the most magnificent, the total antithesis of insufficient, the blessed, the glorious, splendid, transcendent, difficult to comprehend, independent of space and time, but presently present, suspending the heavens with speech. From coast to coast, he speaks peace to wind and seas, got heavenly hosts easily. Posted on bended knees, controls the cosmos with the most authority. So we both in the most exalted King Christ the Priest. He's the sovereign thriller, the awesome healer, the law fulfiller, the solemn killer, the fraud revealer. No God is realer, yeah. When you're taking your time in the scripture, put the gate into prominent picture. See his light shining bright in the night, and his bright in the might, and a diamond in mixture. See his name at all the renown, though. When he came for the lost, that he found low. He was tamed, didn't floss all around, but remained for the manger, the cross, or the crown. Yo, Satan had a trick hold on him. Fight for the rope, but open in. All to the eyes of the S to the E to the N, that's what we hoping in. Risen on it's spell check, the risen king can rinse clean the most rebellious. I was hellbound, now I'm spellbound. Word is born, I'm a bond servant to the word of life. Uh, call me a sellout, I was bought with a price. We gotta hope it won't fail us when we return to the dust. We will rise up just like the one who justified us. It's not wishful thinking when the truth's sinking. We are clinging to the promises that God bringing an everlasting kingdom. Nothing can compare to the worth of what we inherited. Nothing in heaven on earth can measure what Christ merited. The skies declare the affairs of his glorious care. The God who is there, who's aware, who delights in our prayer. His purposes are permanent and perfectly proportionate. Everything that orbits around his glory subordinate. He is the most excellent one, intrinsic, infinite son. Preeminent the name, par excellence, prenom, phenomenon. He's beyond phenomenon, you see. The fiber of cosmology, the abba of astronomy. 
me, he potter, we a pottery It's shocking Jesus died for me The father, he adopted me and constantly provides for me Whether or not I got degrees, you gotta see his odyssey From sovereignty and lottery to poverty and robbery To resurrected bodily apocalyptic prophecy He's stopping all the mockery and scholarly snobbery That don't acknowledge him properly You ought to be on bended knee before the preeminent It's awfully arrogant to reject him to your detriment Study the development from Old to New Testament You'll find a theme that's prevalent from age to age it's relevant Crisis on its center stage Forget religious sentiments The center on man But something less is what you're settling He is the most excellent Exercising benevolence And blessing a remnant With the benefits of his inheritance yeah. The sin of sinners that separated And segregated That severed the relations Between man and his maker And placed Christ on his costly cross And compensated his life Death and resurrection Emancipated and gave us Freedom from it all Freedom from the effects of the fall Freedom from Adam and Eve In the garden of Eden And from the law So the saints stand and applaud His grace and glory of cause with hands raised, praising his name, singing glory to God. Manuscripts, because through textual criticism, you can figure out 
the most accurate ones because there's human error that can be involved in scribal work. They just make mistakes. Sometimes it's unintentional. Sometimes it's actually intentional. You compare a bunch of manuscripts and you go, this is clearly the one that is correct. So the texts that are used for, for instance, the NASB, ESV, NIV, pretty much every other translation but KJV is eclectic. The question is, which grouping of manuscripts is better? The KJV folks would say it has to be the Textus Receptus. We had it for hundreds of years, and now along come some interlopers to claim, no, some of those verses that are in the KJV shouldn't be in there. And they don't like, and I get it. Believe me, I do appreciate the sentiment. It appears, yikes, these new translations, they're taking verses out of the Bible. Well, that is kind of a loaded presuppositional thought, assuming that this is the best manuscript that we could have used for the forever translation in English. Instead, I might suggest to you that because we found better manuscripts than the Textus Receptus, those verses shouldn't have been in there in the first place. Ah, ha, says our KJV only friend. That's exactly my point. Why would God do that? And the answer to that question is, I don't know. I don't know. But I don't have to know the answer to that question. I can speculate. Uh, God used the KJV and continues to use the KJV mightily. He uses a lot of translations, even crummy ones. I don't know why he chose to do it that way. But here's what we're confronted with. The reality that we simply have better manuscripts today than in 1611. King James onlyism is the belief that the 1611 King James Version of the Bible is the only divinely authorized English translation, while modern translations corrupt the Bible. It's not just a deception, it's a satanic conspiracy against the Word of God. The most glaring flaw with this doctrine is not one verse in the Bible supports it. And that's pretty much it. It's a false doctrine. Now, if someone wants to use the King James Bible, that's fine, if you can understand it. But to say it's the only translation God approved is a lie. King James Onlyists argue the KJV is translated from the majority text, while modern versions are from corrupt Alexandrian texts. But the Byzantine texts used by King James translators were no older than the 11th century. We now have access to older and more reliable texts closer to the originals. That's kind of a huge deal right there. When you have a manuscript, not an original copy, but when you have a manuscript closer in time to the original autograph, it's not a definitive ironclad rule, but most of the time you've got yourself a better translation, but there are still more reasons. King James only a say modern translations remove references to Christ's lordship and deleted entire Bible verses. But the Byzantine text added these verses to the original text and the extra references to Christ's lordship. It's just extra pious language from some overly ambitious scribes. King James only a say the 1611 authorized version is the only true Bible. Unless you have a King James Bible, you don't have a Bible. You need a King James 1611 authorized version. Actually, no one uses the 1611, which also included the Apocrypha. Today's King 
James Bible is the 1769 revision. God has preserved his word, which we have in some very good translations of the Bible. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away when we understand the text. So, can we agree to disagree, my KJV only friend? I sure hope this is not an issue that separates the ins and the outs. Love you if you love your KJV, and I hope it is reciprocal. And now this is another one from Richard. This is called, No, the Bible is not assembled in 4th century. Here we go. Truth be told, Regan. Seven, count them, seven things you need to know about your Bible. This is Wretched Radio. A lot of people will tell you when you try to witness to them, well, the Bible was slapped together in, like, at a console. That's a console, not a console. That hasn't been invented at that point. Then, like, like, afterwards, a long time and stuff. So, yeah, I don't need to believe God. Well, that's not exactly an accurate retelling of the assembling of the Bible from corechristianity.com. Seven things you need to know about the formation of the New Testament. This will be for your apologetics use and for your own assurance. We have got the Bible that God intended us to have. No more, no less. Number one, the New Testament canon was not decided by any church council. It was like 300-something, and Constantine made people because he wanted to get the colonies under control, or something like that, (laughs) they say. Well, no, it wasn't a church council that decided it. The councils merely declared the way that everybody knew that it had been working since the time of the apostles. Councils didn't create, they didn't determine the canon. They were just a part of the process of recognizing a canon that already existed because it was under assault by so many wannabes. Johnny's come lately. Hey, this is a Bible book. Mm, No, we better just, just, it's time now because remember, history takes time. Not everything happens Right away, as much as we'd like it to, especially in our technological world, it took time back then. So that everybody in the first century was using the New Testament canon that existed that we have today in our Bibles. And then some time in the hundreds, two hundreds, more books being resurfaced. Hey, what about this one? And this one, too. I like this one. And they got to the point where they said, look, let's just end this. Number two. Early Christians believed that canonical books were self-authenticating, the internal qualities of the book. It it demonstrated itself to be supernatural. Their internal qualities, depicting Christ and his saving work, the consistency of them. This is is not church leaders that just went, "Mm, we like it because of Constantine telling us to do something about it. But they recognize these books. I'm telling you, do that. We've done this several times here on Wretched Radio. Go read a pseudepigraphal or an apocryphal book, and you're going to go, that isn't right. That doesn't, doesn't even feel the same. Bingo. 
self-authenticating. They were in alignment with everything. Now, here happens to be an example of that. A lot of talk in the New Testament about the resurrection. Is that a new idea? No. The Pharisees and Sadducees were split on the issue. The Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. That's why they hated Jesus, among other reasons. You know, declaring himself to be God, that was a bit of a problem with them. But so, too, was his teaching on the resurrection. Is that a new teaching? We heard nothing about it in the old, but suddenly in the new we get the resurrection. Uh Uh-uh. Daniel 12.2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Hmm. If you didn't know better, you'd say that that was written in the New Testament, but it's not. That was Daniel 12.2. The Bible is consistent. And the early church fathers recognized that. Number two, Isaiah prophesied physical resurrection. 26 and verse 19, Rexella. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Was resurrection a new idea? No, it's in the Old Testament. The psalmist notes, the wise and foolish both perish. Psalm 49.10. 49.15 says, God will ransom my soul from the power of Shaol, for he will receive me. Psalm 71. Resurrection is a comfort. Talking about his calamities, all the disasters, in verse 20, he then says, You have made me see many troubles and calamities, and you will revive me again. From the depths of the earth you will bring me up again. There it is. The resurrection in the Old Testament. By the way, did you note that? You have made me see many troubles and calamities. Where do troubles and calamities from? If they're not sinful, they come directly from the hand of God. If they're sinful, he permits it, but he does not cause sinful things to happen. But God will do things to his children, his beloved children, to grow them in ways that they would not grow otherwise. You have made me see many troubles and calamities. When you are going through I'm telling you, I've been a little bit preoccupied with this national issue of loneliness and depression and suicide, so I'm talking to as many people about it as possible. I have not bumped into anybody yet who hasn't gone, yep, my nephew, yep, my cousin, yep, my friend from college, whatever it was. 45,000 suicides a year. It is everywhere. Get your sovereignty theology in place to make sense of these things. Otherwise, you will, you will be shaken. And it's, look, it's hard anyway. This is not to minimize the grief, but recognizing God is working out all things for our good and for his glory. Is it terrible? Yes. Do we mourn? Absolutely. It's an awful thing. The way that we can make sense of it is by understanding God's sovereignty. Now, again, somebody does something sinful, God does not cause that, but he does permit it. I'm talking about weather, I'm talking about health issues. You have made me see many troubles and calamities. You lost all your money, your portfolio's gone, you lost your job. You have made me see many troubles and calamities. But don't worry, 
going to be resurrected, which really chimes well with John 14.1. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Think about that, and you won't be so burdened. The New Testament, when it was being compiled, they recognized that internally this thing is seamless. It is elegant. There are no contradictions. It flows. Number three, the New Testament books are the earliest and best Christian writings we have. The New Testament was completed in the first century, not the fourth, the third century. We have eyewitnesses written within 50 years of the events. Can't be said of any of the apocryphal books. None of them. And especially regarding the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the only Gospel accounts that originate from the first century. What about the Gospel of Peter? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the only gospel accounts that originate from the first century. Well, there's the gospel of Barnabas. Exactly. Number four, the New Testament book come to us. New Testament books come to us directly from apostolic testimony. Unlike any other book that followed that period written later, the New Testaments were connected to the apostles and their testimonies, their eyewitnessing of the resurrected Christ. The canon is connected to them, the teachings of the apostles. And what were the teachings about the cornerstone Jesus Christ? Number five, you should know, the New Testament writers quote other New Testament writers as Scripture. Please read Second Peter 3, 15 and 16. Peter refers to Paul's letters as Scripture. That puts them on par with Old Testament books. Number six, you should know this about the formation of your New Testament. Early Christians did use non-canonical writings, but they didn't use them with the same authority. The authority was not an alley. Yeah, they would quote them, just like Paul did when he actually would quote a pagan philosopher. You know, you know it's been said about your people that you're gluttons and dogs. That is most certainly true. Does that mean that the pagan philosopher who wrote that was inspired by God? No, just a truism, and he quotes it. And so the early church, they would quote some other books for edification. They would see, okay, those could be edifying, but they're not scripture. Number seven, the New Testament documents are the best ancient manuscript tradition we have and were reliably chosen. 5,800 Greek manuscripts, the number is growing. Second closest ancient text, Homer's Iliad, 2,000 copies of his work. That seems high to me. I don't remember it being that high. The works of Aristotle, Plato, Herodotus, Tacitus, and others, not many copies. Nobody doubts their authenticity. Why do they doubt the authenticity of the Bible when it's very clear that it's the inspired word of God? Why? Why, why, why do they doubt? Because they don't want it. They just don't want to submit. Look, this doesn't prove that the Bible is inspired. It doesn't prove that it's infallible, but this does demonstrate that the book that we have today is the exact same book that the Christians, your heritage, were reading not in the 4th century, but in the 1st century. Therefore, have confidence. And know you're reading the same, okay, different language, but you're reading the same books that believers in the, you know, read Romans 16, that laundry list, they were, they were reading the same stuff receiving the same teaching that you and I get today. There's no reason to doubt it. This is Wretched Radio. And now, 
the last one I'm going to do for today is why people are so lonely and suicidal here on Tributal Radio. There is a not-so-fine line between the explanation and the reason. This is Wretched Radio. George Will, Washington Post, taking off on Senator Ben Sass's new book, Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal It. Now, I haven't read the book, so all I can tell you is I don't know how he plans to heal it, but if we're not careful, we're, we're going to be just trimming, we're going to trimming the edges of the leaves of a tree that's dying and not addressing the root because there's a difference between the explanation and the reason. Let me share this with you from George Will and me thinks this will become clear. The public health problem is loneliness. Political problem, partisanship, the, the public health problem is loneliness. And Will goes on to cite all of the statistics that point toward we're a lonely country. I say this is a gospel opportunity. Will writes, Sass's subject is the evaporation of social capital, the satisfactions of work and community. So it sounds like, at least in part, that's Ben's solution, that we need work and we need community. Hold it. That's the explanation for loneliness, but that's not the reason. What's the reason? If work and community is an explanation, what's the reason? Here it is. You were meant to be in relationship with God. That is how you were designed. You reflect your maker, who is a Trinitarian God, in relationship with himself. And when you're not in community, you're just going against the grain. You're like the, I don't want to get all builder-like on you, but you're like, is it a plane? The thing that, like with the wood, you're going against the grain versus with the grain? That's that's the reason people feel loneliness. Do you see the difference? Why work? That's the explanation. People aren't working. They don't have a really good theology of vocation. That would explain why they don't feel fulfilled. But that's not the reason. The reason is God works. You're made in his image, and you were made to work. That is a line that we need to make sure that we don't lose sight of. Otherwise, we'll simply join George Will in trying to explain the problem. No, we, we, can ex- we can give an explanation, but only Christians have the reason for it. It goes down deeper than just here's the presenting problem. With social media, it's causing us to be disjointed. Yep. But why is that bad? That explains perhaps the reason for some loneliness, but it doesn't explain why that makes you lonely. You're the difference between explaining and reason, the, ex- the explanation for social media is, look, you're just, you're just doing everything separately. Just everything that you do. I was, I was thinking about this. If we had somebody, let's say we stayed at somebody's home recently, and we had a lovely time, and they were very gracious in hospitality. I, I thought of this because recently we did stay at somebody's home in Texas, and they were amazingly gracious. And what or hospitable? Did I say hospitality? Yes. Hospitalitableness. We stayed at their home. Now let's just say we wanted to give. Let's let's say they lived locally, and we wanted to express our gratitude. Twenty years ago, thirty years ago, fifty years ago, for sure. What would you have done? 
Well, you would have gone to the store and shopped. Maybe you would have had an interaction with a clerk. You would have talked to somebody. You would have made a transaction. You would then have to go to another store to buy the wrapping paper, another communication between another human being. And then you'd actually give it to the person. Hey, this is for you. Let's get together for lunch so I can give this to you. And what do you have? Human interaction. That was 50 years ago, 30 years ago if you want. How would that transaction take place today? Amazon.com, purchase and send. Done. Do you see what's missing there? Human interaction. And because of that, culturally, we feel lonely. But that's only the explanation. What's the reason? Because you're not meant to be an island. You're not meant to be a standalone entity. You're not meant to go through this life by yourself. And this is especially true from the Christian perspective of church and unity and fellowship of believers. This is a group thing we are doing. Yes, salvation is individualistic, but we're doing this group thing as the church. Why? Because that's the way we're made to be. This is what we were made for. And when you're not behaving like that, you're you're going backwards on you're you're just you're getting shredded on the cheese shredder greater thingy. Again, I don't want to get all technological with the foodie terms here. Or the plane on the wood, you're just going. You're petting. You're scratching the cat backwards. You're just not doing it right. It's going to feel rotten. That explains. The reason is because this is the way God has made you. With that in mind, would like to introduce you to a Q talk. I have to confess, I haven't watched many of these. On occasion, somebody will send them in because they can either be super good or a super stinker. Nevertheless, this was a Q talk, and from a fellow named Andy Crouch. And I, I don't think that I would agree with Andy on a fair amount of theology. He's, he's a BioLogos guy. But looking past that, he knocked one out of the park explaining why we're so lonely. would like to share this with you. This is more of a sociological look. So this is going to explain, in part, why people are lonely, but it is not going to give the reason. It's up to us to provide that. So here's the historical explanation. So these are our three great revolutions, and they stack on top of one another. Wealth from land to money, work from bodies to engines, and then it really gets going once you have in, uh, knowledge shift from, from wisdom to information. The primary obvious result of these three revolutions has been unbelievable prosperity, of which everyone in this room is in one way or another a beneficiary. What's he talking about? The history of our society in the West, the Medici's with the banking system, we went from land to money. When we hit the Industrial Revolution, the end of the 19th century, we went from labor to engines. We really went from farming to factory, and then the technological information. So it's no longer seeking out wisdom. It's having information stored all over the place. Now, are those good things? Yeah, I think we'd all agree they are. Life is easier. I mean, when it comes to physical things, food, clothing, bathing, it's much easier. Life is faster. We get more stuff done. We can be more productive. But it comes at a cost. In the midst of all this 
abundance and prosperity, there seems to be something not quite right. And here's what I'm starting to think it's about. I wonder if what's going on in all three of these revolutions is a kind of trade of personhood for power. All right. Now, maybe that's going to sound a little bit highfalutin. Whether you agree with that or not, I think it's the overall bolo punch that this presentation delivers. We have made a trade. We've got benefits on the one hand, but we've got a trade-off on the other hand. And the, the issue seems to be leading toward one of the reasons why so many people feel lonely. Money is basically an impersonal medium of exchange. It's a way to exchange value with other human beings without having to be embedded in relationship with them. So I go to the convenience store, and I have no idea who this person is behind the counter. Uh, I've got my Walker shortbread or whatever. I've got my credit card, or now I can just wave my phone in the general direction of the payment terminal. And money is liberated from my credit account. It's not even a physical thing. It's just a set of symbolic representations of wealth. And Wawa gets what it wants. It gets the money. I get what I want. I get the snack. The cashier gets paid by Wawa. I never learn that person's name. That person doesn't know my name. Sometimes we don't even make eye contact. Sometimes I try to make eye contact. I realize they're not interested in looking at me. And I assure you that there are people at Wawa working on getting rid of that counterpart person behind the counter because they're really rather vestigial at this point. Would you please allow me to exercise my spiritual gift of beating the horse? Thank you. That's the explanation. Everything is, it's, it's not very personal. And I see this happening a lot, especially the bigger the city, the more impersonal it becomes. But a transaction used to be, okay, what have you got, a chicken? I've got a barrel of wheat or bushel of wheat, to maybe use the correct agricultural term. Let's talk about what the trade could look like here. No more. Out the door of the Wawa, which is apparently a chain in Pennsylvania. That is impersonal, and that is the explanation for why so many people are lonely. It's so normal to us, it's so routine, that we forget that at any other time in history, and indeed for billions of people today, the idea that you would live in this disengaged way, that all your transactions would be mediated impersonally, is unthinkable. Indeed. And that explains why so many people are feeling like an island. In other words, like Paul Simon is what they're feeling like. And that explains it, but that does not give us the reason. The Bible explains why the effect of this disjointed, impersonal society is loneliness, because we're not made to be this way. This is Wretched Radio. For more about Wretched, go to wretched.org, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D.org. Wretched.org. And here's some of the most us here on Truth Be Told Radio. Our website is truthbetoldradio.com, truthbetoldradio.com, T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O.com, truthbetoldradio.com. And next we got for you is a song called Starly Mystery here on Truth Be Told Radio.
praise But since the fall, this world is such an unkind place With crime pays, seeking the devil's wine taste In my case, I was just on a blind chase A mind waste, trapped in my asinine ways But Christ braced himself, entered into time-space The vine breaks, so the branches could find grace When light's rays hit the soul, the paradigm shakes Sublime race, run it at predefined pace Now me and Jesus are closer than intertwined lace And by faith, we behold his divine face So as we're lifting up our praise to you, receive it, Lord The object of our affection, whom we adore Falling in our misery, you daughter into history The pardon of iniquity, startling the mystery The oceans, the plains, mountains, the rain The universe proclaims glory of your name and what am i that you called me to your side and took this heart of stone and broke it open wide
should we believe is true, and what is conspiracy? Well, in Isaiah chapter 8, God was about to send the Assyrians to conquer Israel for their rebellious ways. Everyone would be sent into confusion. Who's in league with whom? What side should we join? Should we fight or flee? To those who are faithful, God said, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and your dread. Peter would later reference these words when he said, Suffer for righteousness' sake, and you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Do not obsess over man-made conspiracies. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge when we understand the text. say the earth is flat? No. <laughs> Do we really have to cover this topic? Scoffers twist the Bible into saying the earth is flat. Now a growing number of professing Christians are doing it. Flat earthers use 1 Samuel 2.8 and Psalm 75.3, which mention the pillars of the earth and how God has set the world upon them. But this is poetic, meaning that God has created all things and established them. Flat earthers use Job 28.24 and Psalm 48.10, which refer to the ends of the earth. But this is symbolic for a great distance or all people. Acts 13.47 says the Lord has commanded us to bring the message of salvation to the ends of the earth. Flat earthers use Isaiah 11.12 and Revelation 7.1, which speak of the four corners of the earth. Still symbolism referring to something happening in all directions, north, south, east, and west. The Bible doesn't explicitly say the earth is flat or round, although it does allude to its spherical shape. Job 26.7 says God hangs the earth on nothing, and Isaiah 40.22 says he sits above the circle of the earth. If you think the Bible says the earth is flat, you put that in the text. You did not pull that from the text. Flat earth cosmology is derived from paganism, not Christianity. Whatever you believe about the shape of the earth, it doesn't have any bearing on your salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Nonetheless, the Bible says avoid irreverent silly myths have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies when we understand the text. There's a popular Christian song entitled Reckless Love, sung by Corey Asbury of Bethel Church in Redding, California. The first verse goes like this. Before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. You have been so, so good to me. Before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. You have been so, so kind to me. So far, or should I say so, so far, the song is all right. Psalm 139.4 says that before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it all together. Romans 2.4 says that God shows his kindness toward us to lead us to repentance. But then we get to the chorus where he sings... Love of God is reckless, a word that means without thinking or caring about the consequences of an action. Not only is that an unbiblical description of God's love, the artist contradicted himself. In the first verse, he sang, Before I spoke a word and before I took a breath, you were good and kind to me. But then he sings that God's love is thoughtless and careless. The Bible says that God chose his elect before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to him himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's not reckless. That's 
God's foreordained. Don't sing this reckless fluff. Praise God for who the Bible says he is when we understand the text. People are having a spiritual or an ethical discussion. One is a conservative Christian and the other more liberal. The conservative calls a popular teacher false or says a culturally accepted behavior is sin and points to what the Bible says. The liberal responds by playing the Pharisee card. You're so unloving and legalistic, clinging to your Bible and your doctrines. You're a Pharisee. Bam! The conservative is instantly discredited and their arguments are invalid. But more than likely, it's the other way around. During the time of Jesus, Jewish communities were governed by the Sanhedrin, made up of two factions known as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees took a very literal interpretation of Scripture, to the extent that they denied the resurrection of the dead because they didn't believe it was in the Scriptures. The Pharisees were more liberal with the Scriptures, and they gave oral tradition equal authority to the written Word of God. So you could say the Pharisees added to God's Word while the Sadducees subtracted from it. Both were self-righteous and believed their works made them good. If someone called you a Pharisee for being faithful to Scripture, they do so in ignorance, for the Pharisees weren't faithful to Scripture. Jesus said of them, they honor God with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus didn't call people who were faithful to his word Pharisees. He called them disciples. In John 8:31, Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free when we understand the text. That is when we understand the text, and you can find them on YouTube as www.tt and www.tt.com. And thanks for listening to the Cantrell here on Truth Be Told Radio. And we're going to go out with Yancey and Friends and the VIBLE. Bye for now. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, 
working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.